Well, boys and girls, I think you're all over this side tonight, but it's great that you're here tonight. And uh, one of the things that I know some of you like doing is reading stories. And together as a church family now, we're going to read a story from the Bible. So we're going to take our Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 3. The big person sitting beside you might want to give you some help as we read this story. They'll find, find the, the chapter for you. They'll find it on page 739 and over into 740. We're going to read Daniel chapter 3. Now, lots of us know the story of Daniel, boys and girls. It's a really exciting story. Daniel isn't mentioned in this chapter. His three friends are. And we're going to read a story about them and something that happened to them, something really scary, but of how God helped them and brought them through. So Daniel chapter 3, and it's page 739 of our Pew Bibles. And we're going to read the whole chapter together. And this is a great story, boys and girls. So if you're not following along, make sure that you're listening really carefully too. Daniel chapter 3, this is God's word. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. We're in verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, 
is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent, and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Amen. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. We're going to be thinking about this chapter together this evening. Uh, You'll find Daniel 3 on pages 739 over into 740 of the Pew Bibles. Uh, This is our third evening on Daniel. Uh, In chapter 1, we saw what it means to live distinctly in the world. In chapter 2, we saw the sovereignty of God. This evening, we're going to see themes that are similar to chapter 1, and you'll find it helpful to have Daniel 3 open in front of you uh, as we look at this story. Uh, One of the most significant changes in life and culture over the past 10 years has been the rise of streaming services like Netflix, Amazon Prime, and Disney+. Among other things, it has led to a generation of children who don't know what adverts are. I don't know if you've had this experience, but when our girls are watching TV and an episode of whatever it is they're watching ends, they just hit a button and the next episode comes on. But if they're watching on terrestrial TV, they don't understand what adverts are. Netflix especially has become very popular. We all know Netflix leeches too, people who have and use an account, even though they don't pay for it. But when something new and exciting hits whatever streaming service it is we subscribe to, we talk about it. We end up watching a series or a film on the basis of a recommendation from someone else. 
Uh, what you watch on Netflix is a well-traveled road of conversation in social settings. You're out for the night with friends, your friends round for dinner. More often than not, you'll end up talking about something that is on the box. And having received a recommendation from a friend about a gripping series that you just have to watch, what do you do? Well, you give it a try and you drop in and you watch one episode. You get a feel for the series. You get a feel for the characters and you're maybe intrigued by what's happening in that one episode. Dropping into the one episode might make you watch the rest of the series. But what, but what watching one episode doesn't do is give you the full picture. You won't necessarily understand the backstory to the characters' relationships. You won't necessarily understand why the thing someone does is so significant. To understand the full picture, you need to understand the context. You need to watch the series from the beginning to understand the plot line and all the twists and turns in the story. I've asked this question before in church, but if you were to put together a list of the top 10 episodes or chapters in the Bible, which stories would make your list? I put it to you tonight that Daniel 3 would be a contender. Daniel 3 is a really well-known story. For those of us who have grown up in church circles, which is probably the majority of us, we will know this story. Maybe inside and out. It's maybe been a while since we've read it, but we'll recognize it nonetheless. Even though we recognize it, it's important for us to realize that it comes in the context of the whole Bible. There are details and parts to this story that we know, but that we maybe haven't connected to other parts of the Bible. But when we do, and hopefully as we do that tonight, we'll find that the story is much richer and that the meaning of it and that the application for us is much more significant than we first realized. So we're on Daniel 3. We've already looked at Daniel 1 and Daniel 2. In Daniel 1, we're told about the beginning of the exile of God's people. Daniel and his three friends are shipped off to Babylon and they come under pressure to conform to the culture and lifestyle around them. They take a stand though, And God is faithful to them, not because of their stand, but because that's who he is. He is the faithful God. In Daniel 2, King Nebuchadnezzar had a recurring nightmare. His finest and smartest magicians couldn't interpret the dream for him, but Daniel, with God's help, did. And what we saw through Daniel's retelling of the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream was that God is sovereign and in control. By Daniel 3, things have moved on and time has marched on. Uh, There's some debate about how long has passed between chapter 2 and chapter 3. It's likely that there was a nine-year gap between Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the events of this chapter. But what does Daniel 3 teach us? What's the main point? Why is it in the Bible? What what, what are we going to be thinking about tonight? Well, here's the main point of Daniel 3. Our sovereign God is able to deliver his oppressed children who refuse to serve other gods. Our sovereign God is able to deliver his oppressed children who refuse to serve other gods. To help us understand that main point, we need to recognize the problem in this chapter, what this chapter calls us to do, and also who this chapter calls us to trust. To help us understand the main point, we're gonna ask three questions. What is the problem? How should we live? Who should we trust? All very simple. Let's get stuck into Daniel 3. What is the problem? Well, nine years have slipped by since chapter two, and specifically Nebuchadnezzar's words in 2.47. If you glance over to the end of chapter two, you'll see that after Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the king says, truly your God is the God of gods and Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, 
for you've been able to reveal this mystery. In a great contrast to his words in 247, chapter 3 begins by telling us that Nebuchadnezzar has built a big statue of gold on the plain of Dura. Immediately we can see that Nebuchadnezzar hasn't been changed by the revelation of his dream. At the end of chapter 2, he sounds very positive about Daniel's God, but it was all superficial. Uh, The Bible commentator Matthew Henry put it well when he said, Strong convictions often come short of sound conversions. In the nine years that have passed since his dream was interpreted, the king's memory of the meaning of the dream seems to have faded. The only thing that he's managed to remember is that he is the head of gold. And because of that, he decides to make himself a big statue of gold. It's 60 cubits in height and six cubits in breadth. That's about 90 feet high. A double-decker bus is 15 feet high, so six double-decker buses stacked on top of each other. Pretty big monument. And Nebuchadnezzar, in really quite a sad and and pitiful way, thinks that this monument is really quite important. You'll see in verses 2 and 3 that he gathers all of his officials together, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, all of them, and he gets them to stand before the image. Now, you may be noticed in the reading that no sooner had we read the list in verse 2 that we had to read it again in verse 3. And it was the same with the musical instruments. When something is repeated in the Bible, it's there for a purpose. It's the author's way of making us see something quite important. It's like he's run a highlighter over this part of the story to show us something. The point of the repetition in verses 2 and 3 and of the instruments is to make us see the stupidity of what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. It's just so stupid. He's getting all these, all these people to run around after him. He's getting the band to, pay, to, to play, the orchestra to play. And it's, it's all for nothing. It's all so stupid. He, he tells his, his gathered officials that when they hear the orchestra, listed for us in verse 5, when they hear the orchestra play, they're to bow down and worship. What's going on? Well, well Nebuchadnezzar has, hasn't just forgotten his dream. He's also forgotten his history. He's setting up his image in the same area where his ancestors set up their tower. Remember, there are details and parts to this story that we know, but that we haven't maybe connected to other parts of the Bible. And something like this has happened before. In Genesis 11, we read about some people coming together and deciding to make a tower that will reach the heavens. Where did they make it? In the land of Shinar, in the province of Babylon the Tower of Babel. Throughout the Bible, we see Babylon and Jerusalem set against one another. But Babylon represents man and his proud defiance against God and his determination to construct a society without God. And Jerusalem represents God and his revelation and the submission of people to his law and to his rule. Nebuchadnezzar is taking his stand with Babylon. He's like the builders of the Tower of Babel. He wants to make sure that his name is great. To make sure that everyone does as he wants and worships his image, he tells them in verse 6, whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. So this isn't a joke. Nebuchadnezzar is, is deadly serious. He's saying, Do you know, I have made this thing, thing, folks, and I want submission and worship from everyone or else there are going to be consequences. And everyone says, fine, we'll bow. Verse 7 is, is really quite sad. It's, it's pathetic. It's a pathetic picture. The, the, the orchestra begins to play. 
There's a great cacophony of instruments and everybody just falls down. They just do as they're told. What is the problem? That, that, that's our point and it's supposed to help us understand the main point. Our sovereign God is able to deliver his oppressed children who refuse to serve other gods. What's the problem? The problem is idolatry. That, that, that's what's happening here. Nebuchadnezzar and those whom he is ruling over are worshipping something that a human has made instead of worshipping the God who made humans. Idolatry isn't just the problem of ancient civilizations. You might be thinking, well, do you know, Stephen, I am not an idol worshipper. That's not something that I'm really into. This doesn't seem very relevant at all. But listen to these words from Paul in Romans 1. Paul says, although they knew God deep down, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. As a result of that idolatry, Paul says, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. What Paul is saying is that, is that idolatry comes before immorality. If we want to understand why there's so much immorality in society, why it's tolerated and promoted, then we need to look behind the behavior to the worship, to the idol. And idols change. History tells us that. In Western Europe, we don't bow down to statues. Some people do, but not very many. More people do in other parts of the world. Some of the idols of our day include the following, though. Our children. When push comes to shove, we worship the image of the perfect family, and the holy God can just fit in around that. Or our health. We're bombarded by culture and society of, of ways to avoid getting sick and, and, and staying as healthy as possible for as long as possible. But the Bible says, from dust we came, and to dust we shall return. Or our political systems. We think and pray and speak as though, as though, if, as, as though if, if our guys win, if our, guy, if, our, if our guys win, if the political party or movement that we believe in wins, then the kingdom of God wins. And if they lose, it's just awful. And the list goes on and on and on. A good diagnostic question to figure out the idol that you bow down before is, what's the last thing on your mind before you go to bed at night? Or, to put it another way, what do you think about the most? Or, what if it was taken away from you would leave you feeling empty and dissatisfied? John Calvin has said that our hearts are idol factories. In other words, our hearts produce idol after idol after idol. They come down the conveyor belt one after another. That's the problem. But what do we do in light of the problem? Well, that takes us on to our second question. Uh, a Christian is not someone who doesn't struggle with idolatry, but Christians do pray, in the words of the hymn writer, the dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from its throne and worship only thee. What is the problem? It's idolatry and we all struggle with it. How should we live? That's our second question and we've got something of a template in this story. Verse eight tells us that some Chaldeans go and tell tales on Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego because they didn't bow down when the orchestra started. In verse 12, they tell the king, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They don't serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They're not listening, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar takes the news as expected really badly. In verse 13, he goes into a furious rage. 
Uh, we should remember that in 2.12, he had a similar reaction. He has got some serious anger issues. He demands that the three friends are brought before him to answer for their lack of idolatry. And once they're hauled before him, he lays it on the line. Look at verse 15. And think of the anger that would have been in his voice. He says, Now, if you're ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? For those of us who have grown up in church circles, which is the majority of us, we know this story. But part of me wishes that I could read it for the first time again, because this is a real cliffhanger. What is going to happen? What, what are these three guys going to do? What would you do? What would you have done? Would you have bowed down? Here's what the friends might have thought. It's a one-time deal. What's the problem with just once? The statue's a joke. Look at the state of it. We can bow down and, and know that it's not God. We're far from home. Mum won't find out. We'll not put it on our Insta story. No one will know. No, no one is actually asking you to say that you don't believe in God. You don't have to say anything. Everyone else is doing it. And no one else will notice that you're joining in. The, ki the king has been very good to us. He's given us jobs, a nice house. Our families are settled. Why, why disrupt all of that? If we bow, we don't die. And if we don't die, then we can be useful to God. And God wants us to be useful, doesn't he? What would you have done? Would you have bowed down? Here's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do. Verses 16 to 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. What they say is remarkable. They say, in effect, our sovereign God is able to deliver us as we refuse to serve other gods. But we don't assume that he will. And even if he doesn't, we are not going to do this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego take God at his word. Specifically, they believe that what he said in Exodus 24 and 5, he actually meant. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under them. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That is the bottom line. They were not going to do it because God told them not to do it. How did they live? How should we live? Faithfully. The, the three friends don't know that they'll be rescued. They know that God could do it, but they're not assuming he will. But they still obey. And that is faith. That, that, that is discipleship. The, the, the Apostle Peter, writing to first century Christians facing persecution, probably had this story in mind when he said the following. He said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Facing the fire as we live faithfully for God is not strange. It's the normal life of the believer in Daniel's day, in Peter's day, in our day. 
We're called to obey even when it won't work out well for us. We're called to obey even when it seems better not to. Uh, there's a chilling story told about a political rally held in the Soviet Union during Stalin's reign. At the end of the rally, a tribute to Stalin was called for and everybody stood up and started clapping. And they clapped and they clapped and they clapped. Three minutes, four minutes, they kept going. Everybody remained standing because no one wanted to be the first to stop. Nine minutes, 10 minutes, they're still clapping, more applause. After 11 minutes, a businessman eventually sat down and everyone else did the same. Their arms and their hands were sore, but it had finally stopped. That same night though, the businessman was arrested. They gave him 10 years in prison for something that he hadn't done. But after he had signed Form 206, the final document of the interrogation, his interrogator reminded him, don't ever be the first to stop applauding. Don't ever be the first to stop applauding. But you know, sometimes that's what God calls us to do to stop applauding, to stop tolerating, to stop going with the flow, to stop doing what everyone else is doing, to stop thinking what everyone else is thinking, and to live faithfully for him. What is the problem? Idolatry. Society is ridden with it. Our hearts are full of it. How should we live? Faithfully, differently, counterculturally. Who should we trust? That's our third point this evening. Having heard what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will not do, Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. Anger issues, I'm telling you. Verse 19, the expression of his face was changed. That, that gives us the sense that he turned purple, red with rage. He condemns them to the fiery furnace that he had promised. In his anger, he orders the furnace to be heated seven times more than it usually was. Uh, but, but Babylonian furnaces at that time were used for the firing of bricks, the fuel was charcoal and the furnace, furnace temperatures produced, uh, the, the furnaces produced temperatures as high as 1,000 degrees. They were a little bit like railway tunnels blocked at one end with an entrance at the other. Nebuchadnezzar makes sure his furnace is nice and toasty. It ends up being so hot that the men who throw Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in are burned to death. That's verse 22. So what happens next is, is therefore an even greater miracle. It's a really hot furnace, really great miracle. Uh, we'll not reread we'll re verses 24 to 27 because we've already read them tonight. But what happens is that Nebuchadnezzar chucks the three, thre the three friends into the hotter than hot furnace and they end up walking around it unbound and unhurt. When they come out, their hair isn't even singed and they don't smell of fire. We, we, we had a barbecue for dinner last night and you'll know that if you cook the barbecue, if you're the one who turns the sausages, then your clothes will stink for the rest of the night. You'll smell of smoke for the rest of the evening. The three friends are in a blazing hot furnace and they come out and no one can smell any smoke from their clothes. It's amazing. Not only that, there's someone else in there with them. Nebuchadnezzar spots a fourth man, one like a son of the gods. A word on that person. Uh, some people say that it's an angel. I'm inclined to say that it is the pre-incarnate Jesus. I think it's a Christophany, an Old Testament appearance of Christ. Other people disagree, and either way, Nebuchadnezzar's question from verse 15 has been answered. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? 
It's this one. It's the sovereign God who delivers his oppressed children who refuse to serve other gods. That's who. As we've said already, the, the hero of this entire book is God. That's who we're supposed to focus on. Our great and sovereign God. The one who delivers us and saves us and will not let us go. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are delivered from the fiery furnace. But as Christians here tonight, we look back on an even greater deliverance, don't we? The three friends were delivered by one who looked like a son of the gods and who had joined them in the fire. But they would one day die. We have been delivered by the son of God who went into the fire of hell of God's judgment for us and who gave his life to deliver us forever so that whoever believes in him shall never ultimately die. The most terrifying furnace that you and I could ever face, the furnace that each of us should face, has already been walked through by the Lord Jesus on the cross. Who should we trust? Jesus. Only Jesus. The thing to take home from this chapter is that, we've, is that if we've believed in Jesus, the furnace and the judgment of hell is one that we will never face. We, we have been delivered from it because of him. But when it comes to the fiery trials of the Christian life, we are delivered through the furnace, not from it. Obedience to Jesus doesn't mean that we skip the fires. Instead, obedience will more than likely bring us into the fires. But it's in the midst of the fire that God shows himself most clearly to us and reveals his strength. Think of what Jesus said. He said this. He said, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, for you are of more value than many sparrows. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. Or think of Isaiah 40, 43 verse 2 our call to worship this evening. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. Our sovereign God is able to deliver his oppressed children who refuse to serve other gods. What's the problem? It's idolatry. Society is ridden with it. Our hearts are full of it. How should we live? Faithfully, differently, counterculturally, who should we trust? The Lord Jesus. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be something if people said of us what Nebuchadnezzar said of these three friends? Look at verse 28. They trusted in him, God, and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. For, for that to be said of us will mean that we turn from idolatry. It'll mean that we see the, the, the idols of culture and the, idol of our, the idols of our hearts for what they really are. It'll mean that we live faithfully, differently, counterculturally. It'll mean that sometimes we will be the first to stop applauding. And it'll mean that we say, I trust in Jesus. Through his death on the cross, he has delivered me from the most fiery furnace, he is able to deliver me from, from whatever comes my way and whatever I may lose. But even if he doesn't, I'm still going to follow him and not worship idols. Daniel 3 is a well-known story. For those of us who have grown up in church circles, the majority of us here tonight, 
We know this story, but its message is relevant to those of us who follow Jesus and also to those who don't. That's because the final question of this story is this. Will we stand for the Lord now, trusting him, believing in him, and go through the fiery trials that come our way and be with him for eternity? Or will we ignore him, worship and chase after idols, drop down and worship just like everyone else, and in the end, spend eternity in the fiery furnace of hell? It is my deepest and earnest prayer tonight that you will not be so foolish to go with option two, but that instead you'll turn to Christ and give him your allegiance and your trust. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this exciting book of Daniel. We thank you for the story that we have looked at tonight. And we thank you that in it we see our problem, the problem of idolatry. We confess that we so easily worship created things rather than you, our creator. We pray that as a new week starts that we wouldn't give ourselves to idols this week, but that we would give ourselves to you, the living and eternal God. And Father, we pray too that you would give us the grace to live faithfully, no matter what that means, no matter the cost, and help us in all of these things to look to our precious Savior, the Lord Jesus, the one who has gone through the fiery judgment of hell, also that we might be friends with you. Father, we pray that you would use this story as well to speak to those who haven't trusted in Jesus yet. We realize that it is a picture in some ways of the judgment that is waiting for them, the fiery judgment of hell, if they don't trust in the Savior before they meet him. Lord, we pray tonight that by your Spirit, you might convict those who haven't yet trusted in Jesus and bring them to him for the first time. And we ask and pray all these things in his saving and gracious name. Amen.